I love animals. I have a wonderful golden retriever. In the history of myself and my family, we've had about 10 cats, all of whom seem to love me more than my two kids. And uh, we've also had five or six dogs. But uh, Buster, my golden retriever, is the best pet we ever had. And so, due to my aversion to airplanes and due to my love of animals, I actually rode a dog to Georgetown. Did you know that? That's right, I came on the Greyhound. <laughs> it was a good trip, too. Meet some interesting people on the Greyhound. But I mentioned my aversion to airplanes. Now, I know I could have flown to Austin. I don't know whether Georgetown's got a commercial airport or not. I could have flown to Austin, saved myself some time. But uh, airplanes have become my enemy, and I'll tell you why. Although, you know, I've liked model airplanes, I just don't like getting in those things and flying, even for a short trip between Dallas and Austin. Now, some of you, like a lot of people in, in Texas, have gone to Colorado. So when I tell you I was on a relatively short trip from um, uh, Denver to Durango, you'll know what I'm talking about. Well, my wife and I were on that trip, and I was planning on some ministry, so I had my sermon notes out in my lap. I had my Bible out there. And we are on this rather short trip between, as I say, Denver and Durango. Well, we hit some turbulence, and it was so bad that any of the food that the waitresses, I mean, this, uh, no, the flight attendants, isn't this something in America? Everything's been renamed two or three times. <laughs> but anyway... The food was flying around. The uh, flight attendants gave up on serving any food. They strapped themselves into their seats in the back of the plane, and all of us were just kind of hanging on tight. But it got worse and worse. It was the most turbulence I've ever been in in a plane. Uh, as time went on and it didn't let up, one of the flight attendants struggled up to where I was sitting. She was hanging on to the back of the seats as she went, and she said, Say I've noticed you've got a Bible there. Are you a preacher or a pastor or something? Because, you know, we've got people here afraid they're going to die. Could you do something religious, maybe something spiritual, to bring some comfort to these people? And I said, oh, I'd be delighted to. And I took an offering. <laughs> now, that didn't really happen, but I kind of wish it had. <laughs> Uh, what I've been doing the last half a dozen years, it's concentrating on writing. And at my book table, back by the coffee, you'll see my biggest book, Exploring the Treasure of Your New Human Spirit. And in the introduction to that, in the preface, I say these words. And I think they're just so important that I'm going to read some of this to you. When President Lincoln wrote to Congress in December of 19, 1862... Shortly after he had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, he wrote, now remember, the Civil War is going on at this moment. Lincoln said, we shall nobly save or meanly lose this last best hope on the earth. What he meant by that is if the American experiment 
was allowed to disintegrate in the Civil War, there would be no hope left for people by the millions around the world who are living under tyranny. The last best hope, he said. I've been captivated by this phrase, the last best hope. And I have a growing conviction that the message of who we are in Christ, his cross, his indwelling, is indeed the last best hope for Christians in the West. I'm talking about North America and Europe. Because in these two areas of our world, Christianity is shrinking in numbers, although it is enlarging at an incredible rate around the globe. And we can point to a lot of reasons for this loss of impact, but I think among the multiple reasons is that many pastors and church leaders have taught almost nothing of any real significance to the cross of Christ beyond the message of redemption. In spite of an unprecedented number of English translations and the availability of Christian bookstores and the internet to give us all kinds of aids in Bible study, most Christians believe what they've heard in public or on media. They do not study the Bible themselves. They are vulnerable to all kinds of anemic Christianity or hysterical Christianity, on the other hand, because they have not learned to be discerning. They don't have discretion about what true life-transforming doctrine it is, is, and thus they are starving with undernourishment from eating only regurgitated biblical truth. So, with this, I think that we do have a tragic situation in the United States and in Western Europe, including the United Kingdom, and the very countries who have been behind most of the expansion of the worldwide missionary movement are now weakening and crumbling from within. Now, I don't want to get some delusion of grandeur about what I teach and share with people. However, I think between my own efforts, the efforts of your pastor, and a growing army of people across America, I think this can be changed. I think the message of Christ dying for us and us dying with him, being raised to new life and him living within us, can indeed change things. What if evangelicals just in the United States embraced a relationship with Christ that would increase their zeal for knowing God in his word, not just secondhand? What if they could find a strength beyond themselves that comes from God's life within their spirit? And thus the book that I just showed you the cover to, exploring the treasure of your new human spirit. What if their walk could be consistent with who they are, resulting in freedom from addiction to entertainment and accumulations? What if their moral life could be lifted high above the culture, not by the threat of anything legalistic, but by the thrill of just pleasing God? What if they could be so filled with the love and life of Christ that 
he indeed overflowed to other people who need to know Christ so desperately. So based on my personal experience in my 40 years of involvement with people, I submit that this, the message of union with Christ, is indeed the last best hope. And I pray regularly for a mighty revival in the United States of America. We've seen it before. There have been a half a dozen of earth-shaking, worldwide revivals that have swept across our country. And I think God could do it again, provided a message is shared in that revival that will sustain people's Christian life. So they won't just get right with God and right with other people. They'll know where the abundant life comes from. Well, that's what my ministry right now is all about. I've written about 12 books and got about as many recordings, some of which you'll see on the table back there. And so if even so far God is touching your heart with a zeal to know him better, to know the equipment he's put within you to receive life and power in your human spirit, uh, to know the full reality of the cross, I just invite you to come and talk with me about those books. Now, I am going to have an opportunity to spend a half hour here with you talking about that message. And so turn to the notes that you've got in your bulletin, the sermon notes that are there. You'll see them. They're kind of in fine print. They've got this title on them. How Christ and the Cross Can Become the Center of Your Life. While you're looking for them, I have a very important television announcement. This past week, candid camera returned to the airwaves. Now, many of you have seen that in the past, but it's been off of television for years. It's back on. It's on TV land. Can you get TV land on your cable here? If you can, you need to find out when candid camera is showing in the Austin area. It's one of the funniest And moral, it's actually morally uplifting, and it'll help you realize that you're not the only person that can be deceived and tricked, and it can turn out to be something really funny. So I know it's on at 7 o'clock in Dallas, but that's not going to help you here in this area. But it's TV land, and of course, who could forget? Smile, you're on candid camera, right? Now, one of the old episodes that they had that they re-showed this week as the program just got kicked off this week, it was in black and white, and then they repeated it just the last few weeks. Here's how it goes. They get a beautiful blonde girl who looks like a real airhead. She just does not think too well. They put her in an old convertible, and a tow truck pulls her car to the top of a hill. At the bottom of the hill is a repair shop, an automobile repair shop, with the finest mechanics in the world. Well, the tow truck lets her go, and she coasts downhill. And then, you know, as the land kind of straightens out a little bit, there's the repair shop, and she negotiates this convertible into the repair shop. Now, originally this was done when, you know, gas station attendants would come out and ask you about checking your oil and tires and filling it up with gas. But, and of course they did that in the old black and white episode, but she's attractive enough that they come out anyway, even in the modern one. 
And here's what she says. She says, I have been having trouble with the car just the last few moments. Here, I've been driving it all day long. I can't get it to go anymore. And my husband is, this is our only car. My husband's expecting me home, uh, you know, in the next 15 minutes. Could you look under the hood and see what the problem is? So the guy dutifully opens up the hood, and he looks in, and the motor is gone. I mean, it is zilch. It's not there. He scratches his head, and he says, Lady, are you aware you don't have a motor in this car? She said, Oh, well, isn't it in the trunk? Check the trunk. This model does not have an engine in the trunk. Well, would you just look in there anyway? She said, The thing was going real well until a few minutes ago, and they look in the trunk. It's not in the trunk. She said, Well, now, like I say, I'm going to be in big trouble with my husband if I don't get home soon. Couldn't you just give me a jump start? Lady, there's no motor in this car. Well, how about just a little bit of gas, enough to get me home? I live within a half hour of this place. You are not going anywhere with that car. It doesn't have a motor. Now, we all know, whether we know much about automobiles, that the engine is the center of an automobile. It's the center of anything that runs, uh, other than, you know, if you're running for your health. Uh, you've got to have a motor. Now, I'd like to tell you how I discovered, not that I had no motor, but that my motor wasn't working very well. Uh, as has been mentioned already, I ended up in Dallas Theological Seminary in 1968, moving down to Texas just to go to seminary. That's the reason I came. I never knew that 45 years later I would still be here. But anyway, I went to Dallas Seminary, the best seminary in the world of the independent seminaries. And so I never thought they would accept me. I applied almost two years ahead of time, just thinking that if they turned me down, I have time to look elsewhere. But amazingly enough, they needed a warm body in a seat, so they accepted me. And I came to Dallas Seminary. And most things I undertake, I really put my whole heart and soul into them. I was studying Hebrew before I ever got into elementary Hebrew, and they all thought I was a nut for doing that. But once I got into Hebrew and found out how hard it was, I was glad I did. I'd already had a couple years of Greek. I love theology. I love the Word of God. And so I uh, went to work there at Dallas Seminary. Uh, soon after graduating from the master's program with a degree in New Testament Greek and literature, they asked me to be on staff. I started teaching Greek and um, was in the doctoral program as well. And I managed through teaching to squeeze a five-year doctoral program into 11 years. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the reason why I did it, I'd seen too many guys lose their wives and families over getting through school as fast as they could. Well, once I got that doctorate, which was in systematic theology, the Lord decided to really give me his kind of education. And so I went through a period of disillusionment, a period of discouragement. I was angry at people going all the way from my youngest daughter to the president of the seminary. And when you don't handle anger, it turns into depression. I became depressed, and for months I wasn't sleeping well at night, hardly had the energy to get up in the morning and go teach my classes. I didn't know it at the time, but what God was doing is bringing me to the end of my own resources, showing me that I'd been running on watered-down gas 
because I had been relying upon the strength of my soul. I'd been relying upon my mind, my will, and I certainly couldn't rely upon my emotions, but I was overly emotionally dependent upon my wife. And so God was taking lovingly the crutches out from under me. And one night early in the morning, I mean one morning early in the morning, I woke up about 3 o'clock and I said, Lord, what's wrong? And I felt led to go out in the living room where I wouldn't disturb my wife and I could talk out loud to the Lord. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't think, God, that you have failed me. But there's static on the line somewhere. And if you'll show me, I ha- don't have a clue, but if you'll show me what my problems are, I guarantee you I will handle them. And briefly stated, and you can read more about this in the book that I just showed you and some other books as well. In fact, I've got a book of like 35 testimonies out there, including my own. Uh, what God showed me is that I was self-reliant, that I was self-willed, and I was self-centered. Soon, uh, I was broken. I was, like I say, out of gas. I couldn't run anymore. Now, I had the motor in my spirit of being a new creation in Christ, but I wasn't running on fuel from the divine inventor of that motor. And so, uh, soon after that period of breaking and being convicted of what my flesh was really like, God led me to some literature that helped me. And the big thing I learned is that my own selfishness was at the center of my life. That's what I had. That's what I was trying to run. I was trying to run on a rubber band rather than the motor God had already put within me. And God showed me some things that I'd now like to show you on the overhead with some brief comments, and you can follow in the notes there. I hope that maybe my story, although most of you are not seminary professors, I hope my story uh, connected with you in some ways. Now, what we center on in our life determines a great deal. Now, I want to show you what God has already done to make Christ the center of your life. And basically stated, here it is. God took you out of being in Adam to put you into Christ. The shortest, little, most important word in the Bible is the word in, I-N. In Greek, two letters as well, E-N. It's the most important word because it talks about who we're connected with. What sphere are we in? And when you were born, even though you look like an innocent little baby, you were a depraved sinner by birth in Adam. So when you came to know Christ as your Savior, God miraculously took you out of your existence in Adam. And what did he do? He put you in Christ. It's sort of like this. Here's what you were like before you were saved. Here's what God transferred you into. Isn't that great? That's enough to make an Episcopalian shout. This is good news. (laughs) And when I saw that what God had already done for me, I was so thrilled. I didn't have to stew any longer in the misery of my own inadequacy, my own feelings that I wasn't 
measuring up. How did God take you out of being in Adam to put you in Christ? The way he did that was through the cross of Christ. Now, there's not a single Christian here that has not heard and that does not believe that Jesus died for their sins. But I dare say there's quite a number of you who don't know anything else the cross did in regard to sin other than providing forgiveness, as important as that is. Here's the other thing. The cross took the sinner out of Adam and made him or her a saint. And that is part of the full work of the cross. There's at least a half a dozen other things that Jesus did at the cross, but this is the one I want you to think about right now. And uh, Paul devoted a whole half of a chapter in Romans 5 to tell us about the mess we were in in Adam and the glory of being in Christ and having his righteousness, his life within us. You can see the references there if you'd like to read them at home. Now, this took place when you received Christ as your Savior. So it's really true of every one of you that knows Jesus as your personal Redeemer. I'm here to tell you, he not only is your personal Redeemer, but when you trusted in him, he took the old person that you were. We're calling it old self, really, in the Bible. It's called old man. He took the old person that you were. By the way, you ladies were old women. Uh, he took the old person that you were and took you to the cross. And as a result of snuffing the old man, the old woman who was in Adam, he was able to take his life, as the red arrow shows, put his life within you and give you a new center for your life, changing you from basically being a sinner by birth to being a saint through the cross, from being unrighteous, unacceptable to God, to receiving not only forgiveness, but the righteousness that God gave as a free gift and making you a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, these truths of who you are in Christ are like a two-sided coin. I don't have a pizza pan, so I'm going to use my book, okay? Imagine this to be a big, big coin. Now, one side of the union with Christ, which means your spirit joined to Christ's spirit, one side of that is this first point that you'll see here. It's that you are in Christ. Now, Galatians 2.20 is the key verse. I have been crucified with Christ. That's the old Saul of Tarsus that Paul is talking about. Saul of Tarsus was crucified with Christ and is no longer Saul who lives. That's death with Jesus. Not just Jesus dying for you, but you dying with Jesus on the cross. Now, that's not just Galatians 2.20. How about Romans 6.6? 6? Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Past tense. We don't get crucified over and over again. One time does it. It transfers us from being in Adam to being in Christ. That's one side of the union with Christ truths. In Christ. Now, if you only remember one thing when you walk out those back doors and go home or wherever you're going, cafeteria, wherever, if you just remember, I am in 
Christ, most of everything that God has for you is wrapped up with you being in Christ. But the coin has another side. Not only does the one side give you identity and make you a new creation, there's another side, and that is Christ in you. So you're in Christ, Christ is in you. You say, well, that sounds contradictory. How could it be both? Well, have you ever gone swimming? Most of your body is water. Water was in you. You were in water. You've all taken a breath, haven't you? I hope you keep taking a breath this morning. So we're, you are in the air. The air is in you. So what's true in the physical world, there's no reason why it couldn't be true in the spiritual world. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Now we read that about you having the life of Christ within you in the last half of Galatians 2.20. Paul has just said the old Saul was crucified with Christ, and this old Saul no longer lives, but Christ lives in the new Paul, the apostle. Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, in the human body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, What we've just illustrated here is what you saw with the life of Christ coming to be within your human spirit. Now, there's a lot of confusion, and that's why I wrote almost a 300-page book on the human spirit. There's a lot of confusion here, because most of you, if I were to back you into a corner and ask you the difference between your soul and your spirit, you couldn't tell me. And I'll tell you why you couldn't tell me. It's because hundreds of songwriters have deceived you into thinking that you got your soul saved. When Jesus said, that which is born of the Holy Spirit is spirit. You get born again in your human spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But if you, like me, remember the anti-establishment days and the rise of the Jesus people... Remember Larry Norman? Oh, he's the rock that never rolls. He's good for the body and great for the soul. He's the rock that doesn't roll. Or perhaps other uh, songwriters. Uh, He saved my soul and he made me whole. And I'll live with him while the ages roll. Now, why have the songwriters done this to us? Why have they taken the wonderful verses about the Spirit and represented them in music with the word soul. Well, I got suspicious about that, so I bought a rhyming dictionary. And do you know there are twice as many words that rhyme with soul as do with spirit? Now, here's the thing. Your soul is saved, but that's a progress. And First Peter tells you that in the end, your personality, your mind, will, and emotion, your soul will be saved. But Jesus tells you unequivocally The Holy Spirit gives birth to spirit, just like human mothers give birth to little humans. None of you mothers, when you were in the maternity ward and the doctor announced what had just been born, you know, boy or girl, none of you mopped your brow and said, oh, thank God, it's not a muskrat. You expected a human body, right? A human baby coming out of your human body. That's what Jesus said being born again is. It's getting a new spirit. And that's where the Holy Spirit lives. That's where Christ in you is. 
We also learn from the upper room discourse that God the Father is there. So you've got all this potential within you, not of you, but within you. Now, the point is, is will you make a study of this? Will you really say, okay, Lord, I want to know all there is about the new creation I've become in my spirit. And I'm going to just stop listening to the theology and some of the songs. I'm going to go directly to your word. And you won't go astray there because there are 70 instances of the, new human, of the human spirit in the Old Testament, another 70 in the New Testament. Now, let's go on here. What we're talking about with this old man exchanged for new man, the life of Christ as our power at the center of our life, for us being a power at the center of our life, is called the exchanged life. I'm going to skip this one because I've already talked about it. Now, why do we call it the exchange life? Like the word Trinity, the word exchange life is not in the Bible, but the doctrine is there. And here's what we mean when we use that term exchange life. We mean this. We mean that it is a swap. It's a trade-out at the cross of a self-centered life lived out of the Christian's own resources as if he were in Adam, for this, for a Christ-centered life lived out of Christ's resources because he is in Christ. You desperately need to know this because some of you are still trying to live the Christian life. I want to encourage you to give up because the standard is so high no one's ever lived the Christian life except one man, and that's Jesus Christ. And he wants to live it within you. He wants to live it through you. And he can do that. It's going to take your cooperation, but he can do it. And so that's what I want to talk about. How can you let Jesus do this? Now, I'm going to read part of a wonderful song from the days of the, Revol uh, the uh, Reformation. And boy, we have some good ones coming from there. And I want you to listen to these two verses because they're going to tell you that the Christian life is filled with strength. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. Oh, don't you like that description of Satan? The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Okay, now I want to make an offer to anybody in here under 25 years of age. If you'll come back to the book table and tell me what that song is called and who wrote it, I will give you one of my books free. I just want to see, is there anyone under 25 that even recognizes that song? Most of you don't qualify, by the way, I'm sorry to say. 
You flunked the physical, you're too old. But you younger people, if you know that song and the author, now I can't give you one of my $20 books, but anything under that, I'll be glad to give it to you. Now, what Martin Luke, what the author was uh, upset about was the work of Satan. And certainly he is opposed to us, and we certainly do know the reality of the demon world and have seen it in our counseling center. But do you know Satan's not your biggest problem? Well, he may be your biggest problem, but he's not your everyday problem. The, your everyday problem is a monkey that's on your back, and it's called the flesh. That's what hinders this wonderful life of Christ from flowing through us. It's the flesh. Now, I want to encourage you when this uh, service is over to go to the adult class. I have no idea what it's called here, but you know the one I mean. And Rick McIver, an associate of mine, is teaching there much more about the flesh, and you need to hear Rick's teaching because he can, he's got the time to say so much more than I. Now, look what I put here in your notes. In this sense, the flesh could be described as our own ways, apart from God, of trying to make life work for ourselves. See, you can be in ministry and be living according to the flesh. It's not just the gamblers, the swindlers, and the prostitutes who can live according to the flesh, although they certainly qualify. But anything done relying upon our own resources out of our mind, will, and emotion or our bodily resources and not out of our spirit by the power of Jesus living his life within us could be accurately described as an attitude of flesh. We're not talking about the meat between your skin and bones. That's what Paul said, the life I now live in the flesh, he simply meant human body, or the word became flesh. That's not the kind of flesh we're talking about. The word flesh can be used five different ways in Scripture. We're talking about the moral use of the word flesh. It's this attitude of independence, trying to make life work for ourselves. When we're living under the dominance of the flesh, Christ is not our functional source of life. Now here, the illustration of the dumb blonde coasting down the hill in a car without a motor uh, does not fit. As you see, you see, every one of you have got a motor within you. It's in your spirit. But you try, you've been trying to make it run on low-octane gas, which is your own self-effort. And so what I'm here to do is to encourage you, as much as God shows you what your fleshly attitudes are, to absolutely turn from them to avoid them like you would a scorpion. Because you see, if you try to live your life pleasing your own self-interest, living it by your power, and try to live it for God at the same time, it's like being married to two wives. Now, men, how many of you 100% please the one wife you do have? I know I don't. And so please don't give me two wives. Women, how many of you think that you actually, 100% or even nine times out of ten, please your husband? How would you like to have two husbands? But living the Christian life according to the flesh and trying to live it according to the life of Christ within you is like trying to please two spouses at one time. There's all kinds of conflict there, like Paul says in Galatians 5.16. The flesh sends its desire against 
the, the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now look at the indented paragraph. Maybe nothing I've said so far is real new to you, but you need to know what this paragraph says because this probably is new to you. In our humanness, we tend to be proud. We want our way and we want to protect ourselves. We build barriers to do this. Brokenness can be described as God breaking through these barriers and showing us our insufficiency to live life apart from him. God will do this work fully in our lives when we're willing to surrender or give ourselves over to him. Surrender is our okay to God, since God doesn't strong arm us, to use whatever he needs in our lives to set us free from the dominance of the flesh. We give up our rights in order to benefit from God what God allows to happen to us in order so that he can set us free and live his life through us. Tony Evans says, brokenness is God stripping away everything that keeps the beauty of Jesus seen in and through us. Now you folks are in the new covenant and I know something about you that maybe you don't know. I know that in your true new covenant heart, you do want the beauty of Jesus to be seen in you. I'm convinced that you do. And so please let God do his work in stripping from your life and attitudes anything that keeps the beauty of Jesus from shining through you. Now, Pastor Roberts can preach what I'm saying, and I'm sure he has. And you can bring in the so-called experts like me, you know, the hired guns, to make it even stronger and more explicit but it's going to do you absolutely no good until you decide, God, I am sick of living by just my good intentions to do, my, to do the best according to what people have told me about how the Christian life is going to function. I want you to strip away all the fleshly attitudes that keeps Christ from living his life through us, through me. Now, if we will do this, if we will truly let God work on the sand and the gears of the Christian life, as we turn from our flesh and fully trust Christ as our life, we will learn that those who walk by the Spirit will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. We will learn that the mind set on the flesh, this is the Romans 8, 6, the mind set on the flesh is death. It has the stench of death to it, but the life but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. And if we see this, any moment that we're truly trusting that Christ is our life and that our flesh is a bummer, then Jesus and his cross are the center of our life. Now, remember how I started? I said, I love animals. I love pets. So I closed with one illustration from the animal world. Now, I said I've had about 10 cats, and oh, I tell you, I've loved those cats. But you know, if you really scrutinize the attitudes of a cat, they're like a lot of immature Christians. And here's the way a cat thinks. I know this because I've been able to mentally communicate with felines. <laughs> I am the god of this house. And you humans are here to serve me. I'm expecting food. I'm expecting shelter. I'm expecting clean litter. 
And I'm expected, I'm expecting the freedom to spend all day licking my fur and sleeping. And you better not run counter to me because after all, I'm in charge. I'm the God of this house. That's the way cats think. Now, there are many sweet cats, and I've had them, so please, if you're a cat lover, uh, I don't want to get emails from you, okay? I love cats. But this is what they're basically all about. All about. Now, in contrast, think of dogs. I've had about a half a dozen dogs. Here's a dog. Here's what he's thinking. I love you, almighty God. Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. What a wonderful life that, that you would even deign to let me come in your house. Could we go for a walk together? Oh, I just love you, almighty God of the house. See? Now, that's a dog's attitude. That's why they run to greet you. That's, that's why they wag their tail when you feed them and pet them. You are God to that dog. So, what kind of Christian do you want to be? Do you want to be a cat Christian? Basically calling the shots, looking at yourself as the center of your existence? Or do you want to be a dog Christian? Worshiping God Almighty and appreciating the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed lives within you. If you remember this illustration, I think it would get to the basic bottom line of what I'm saying. So, do show up for that class that Rick McIver is teaching next hour. He's going to get a chance to explain this so much better. And, and if you mean business with the Lord, I just know that's going to be worth you hanging around for. And also, I want to encourage you, again, to look at the books and recordings. James, the head of your board here, is going to be there with me. And we'd just love to show you those books. We would. But most of all, what's going on in your mind and attitudes right now? Lord, I do pray that people will show the, be, see the bankruptcy of their flesh and the blessedness of what you've done at the cross for them. Oh, how I pray that, uh, that this will be more than another Sunday sermon, that it will be more than just putting in our time on Sunday morning, but it might truly be transformational. Lord, I pray that folks will indeed remember some of what I've said and go to that class and stop by and get some books and recordings. Lord, you know I'm not after their money. I just want to be able to extend this message further. And so I'm trusting that you will do that and thank you for this wonderful church and for the beacon that they are in this whole area. In Jesus' name, amen.